Um, I didn't really like eating. My mom thought there was something wrong with me. <laughs> she sent me to a bunch of doctors. There wasn't really anything wrong with me exactly. I just wasn't interested in eating. It always felt like a chore to me. Maybe my mom was just a bad cook, I don't know. But I used to watch movies and read books about robots back when, and that was back when the idea of robots was more fiction than it is now. And I just found myself really drawn to them. Um, like I said, I was super skinny and kids made fun of me. I didn't, I didn't really like other people. I didn't really have any friends, but I also wasn't exactly bothered by that. I would just pretend that I was a robot. I would make these robot costumes out of whatever I could find. Some of them were actually pretty cool. <laughs> but then I sort of took it too far sometimes, like the whole not eating thing. Um, so my mom would scream at me and she would beg me to eat my dinner and I would scream back, you don't understand mom, it's not part of my programming. <laughs> I mean, she didn't understand, she just thought I was disturbed or crazy or something. I was just a seven year old. My name is Laura Reeser and I am a singy punk. So most New Yorkers I know are the normal robot apocalypse-fearing Americans just like anyone else in the country. However, if you live in New York City, you may have heard of a new fad that's gaining momentum. Maybe you've seen it graffitied on some bathroom wall. Or maybe someone you're friends with on Facebook identifies as part of it. Maybe it's even traveled to your city as well. It's called Singupunk, and today we talked with one of its members about her life as a Singupunk, and ultimately, her quest to obtain something seemingly unobtainable. This is Our New City, the reports on the ever-changing, always-going-ons of New York City and beyond. I'm Max Cook. So the other day I went to Ridgewood, Queens to a little coffee shop to meet up with Laura Reeser, confessed singy punk with active roles in the community, to talk with her about what this movement we've all been hearing about is all about. I should mention that this is also the coffee shop that she works at. Hey, Laura. Oh, hey. Nice to meet you. Um, so I'm, I'm actually almost done with my shift. Do you mind waiting a few minutes? Oh, yeah, that's fine. I'll get you a coffee. Oh, great, thank you. Laura finishes up her shift and I sip my coffee. She seems uneasy and embarrassed at having to deal with customers while I'm there. Or maybe just uneasy in general. She's in her mid-twenties and she's got a spunky haircut, the type you'd expect to see in a hip coffee shop in the hip part of Ridgewood, Queens. Finally, she sits down and gets settled. She has a bunch of tattoos, including a large one on her arm. It reads, the singularity is nigh. And above it is a large image of Rosie the Riveter. But instead, Rosie's arm and head are mechanical, with robot face and robot eyes. So, Singupunk is a movement that is gaining momentum with people. And it's essentially people who not only embrace the idea of the singularity, but actually use it as a guide to living their own lives and um, further preparing for the arrival of the singularity. So what is the singularity exactly? Well, it's essentially the idea of computers becoming self-aware when they stop listening to us and start having a mind of their own. You've probably seen a million movies talking about the possibility and the result of this idea usually resulting in the destruction of the human race. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hasta la vista, baby. 
I mean, it's not a religion, but I use the ideas of Singupunk in my everyday life for sure. So in that respect, yeah, it kind of is. Um, I would say it's like a life practice, a system of beliefs, yeah. But it's not like a religion in that as a Singu, you have to believe a certain thing or pray to some robot god or something like that. So what, what are those beliefs? Well, a lot of people look at the upcoming or in their minds, you know, possible singularity as a time when robots or just any form of artificial intelligence becomes indistinguishable to humans. And for them, that's a very scary thought. Um, you know, that computers will become self-aware and have conscious thought and that they'll like <laughs> decide to kill everyone or something like that. You know, that we should fear the eventual revolt of machines or something. It's stupid. So, Singapunk's not only accept this to be something that will happen, but something that they embrace and prepare for. So we don't see it as a threat to humans. We see it as, well, <laughs> human perfection. Okay, so humans are supposed to be superior to animals because they have this rational capacity that animals don't have, this mm -hmm. awareness of their mortality that animals, you know, don't have. Mm -hmm. So why would you not then take that intelligence and distill it mm -hmm. to something more perfect that is sort of devoid of these animal elements? I mean, why should something with genius mm -hmm. take a shit or eat? You know, those are things that animals do. So a robot is actually a more perfect human. Mm -hmm. Laura says that she's been a stingy punk her whole life, but only has been identifying as one over the last couple of years. She said when she was a kid she loved robots. She was a skinny kid and kids made fun of her. Robots were just kind of a way of understanding why. Laura said that not only did she relate to these robots, she actually started to think she was one. Robots never ate and she never ate, that the reason she was never hungry must be because she was, in fact, a robot. Like I said, when I would sit in the corner, I would say, I'm recharging, and try to give her an idea of who I was. Um, you said you were recharging? Yeah, I did. Like a robot? Yeah. I mean, that's what sleep is for, right? So if I can just go into sleep mode and sit and not doing anything, then that's recharging. So you, mean, you would, I just want to clarify, so like you would just sit in, you know, in a, in a place and you would just kind of not move and you wouldn't really do anything and you'd yeah. just kind of be staring out in the space. Yeah. Well, Were you actually, I mean... I would, I mean, you know, I, I am in a human body. I would breathe, but I would try to do it as um, spread out, you know, spaced out as possible. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, I would say that I was recharging. Or if my mom said to do something and I didn't want to do it, I would just, in the same monotone voice, say, that does not compute, that does not compute, over and over. Um, I really drove her crazy. And then I sort of grew up and I grew out of it. I mean, I still loved robots, but I realized that I wasn't actually a robot, you know? And um, I just kind of went on with my life. And then when artificial intelligence eventually started to catch up with all the fiction based on it, I couldn't help but get interested in it again. But it was just kind of there in the back of my mind, 
until I heard this this interview with um, with Fairbanks. All right, I'm going to shift gears for a second. The man Laura is referring to, maybe some of you have heard of him, maybe not, is Nathan Fairbanks. He's a professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania and an author on something he calls futuristic sociology. He's one of the leading minds today on futuristic ideas and just simply kind of where we're going as a species. I'm going to play a segment of an interview he did during a presentation at UPenn about invention destroying freedom, because there are a lot of ideas that he covers that Laura references later on in the program. I'm not going to tell you what it's about exactly, because I feel like it'll sort of take away some of the charm. So it jumps right in. Nathan's talking first. Take a listen. So, for instance, nowadays we go to the bathroom, and when we wash our hands, we put our hands in the water, and the soap is added to the water automatically while we wash, and then it's removed from the water automatically in an undetectable, thorough process involving sensors and timers, and we have it all sort of taken the process for granted. We just put our hands in the water, and we don't think about what's happening, really, and then we take them out, and we know they've been cleaned. But as you know, there was a time when you would have to turn on the water, apply the soap to your hands manually, and then rinse off the soap in soap-free water. And when they first invented the automated integrated soap dispensing faucets we have now, you might not remember, but people sort of got annoyed by it. They said, it's not hard to apply my own soap. I have no need for a faucet that adds soap for me. Why would they invent this? The difference in time and ease would be unnoticeable. And this is stupid. Can you believe how stupid this is? And frankly, I feel like it was a bit scary to lose the freedom to apply the soap ourselves. Yeah, but, but why would it annoy them? Well, they were annoyed because it seemed like, you know, such a waste of human endeavor to, I don't know, it made an activity that was already so easy, moving your arm 10 inches, grabbing a thing and putting it down, it made that easier. To them, the automated soap integrator saved them, what, one second of their day? It wasn't something they needed, and I feel like they were, they were defensive about it, as if they'd been insulted. The idea that they needed something to do this for them. Okay, but why not just ignore it? Just buy your own soap like before, right? Why in the first place did soap move into this less physical form and more into the, you know, the automated soap cartridge dispenser industry that we have today? The, the, the decision to make soap integrated was in fact chosen by the people. It wasn't forced on them. Like, I mean, after all, there are still artists that make soap in bar form and, you know, little artisanal shops or custom boutique websites. It, if you really wanted soap in bar form, you could just not install the stupid soap cartridge in your automated soap integrator and then just use it like before. Well, that's exactly it, isn't it? We don't really want to, do we? People initially fought the idea thinking that they didn't need it. But then, when faced with it, it's kind of nice not to have to do it, isn't it? If it exists and it takes something we as humans have to do and it does it for us, it feels like we as humans have gained something by that, like we have gained time and therefore life. It's like we're chipping away at our mortality, one automated soap cartridge at a time. Well, but, you know, I, I talk to people at parties and people I know. I, I listen to them go on and on about how they've got this bar of soap and made from beeswax or whatever. And you know, sometimes they even march me into their bathroom so they can... Uh, show me their soap, but, I mean, but for them, it, it does seem to be important. But, but not to you, it seems. Well, I have to admit, I, I just used the soap in the integrator. I, I Personally, I don't really need to be using artisanal hipster soap bars, but, you know, that's just me. But, you see, that's what soap has become. It's been reduced to a hobby, 
It's like at the turn of the century when people started listening to vinyl records instead of MP3s. It was clearly not the easiest way to listen to music. But they felt like they were losing something in the ease of listening. But now, nobody really even listens to vinyl or MP3s anymore either. Well, some people still listen to vinyl. But less, less than at the turn of the century, and certainly much less than in the 70s. It's, it's a fad. It's waning. And it'll continue to wane, just like your friend's artisanal soap will eventually wane. We don't need to listen to vinyl. So when we do it, it's not for the function. It's for the recreation. Once we move something from necessity to recreation, it's only so long before it wanes from existence. Yeah, but really, isn't all music just recreation in the first place? I mean, are you, are you saying that music is waning from existence? No, 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 because music serves a purpose. Technically, in my mind, music isn't, isn't recreation by the definition that bars of soap are recreation. There is necessity in music. We're not talking about listening to music. We're talking about listening to music on vinyl. The music almost isn't the fun part about listening to vinyl. It's the listening to vinyl part that's fun. It's a novelty. And that's what soap is now. It's become a novelty. It's something you talk about at parties, and it's something you show your friends. If you think about it, it's kind of ironic. We've actually used the time we've gained from not having to use soap to now choosing to talk about soap as a recreation. <laughs> well, that, that, that's true, but... Um... So what was your original point about the soap thing? Well, the thing with the soap thing is that the invention of the automated soap integrator was an invention that took away an almost unnoticeable step in our days. Like all inventions, the point of an invention is to take away a burdensome or annoying or impossible step towards something we're looking to achieve. But what ultimately are we trying to achieve? Well, like in the case of the soap integrator, it's just taking this one small step of having to apply soap to your hands. Like, why not have it be just one step? It's just like any invention. I don't understand how removing that one step from my day has taken away any freedoms I once had. I can still buy soaps, soap bars, and I can still choose not to buy bars of soap. Okay, I'll admit, it's a little hard to explain. But think about it like this. Some inventions take away small steps, but others take away large steps. Like, Walking from point A to point B, that would normally take, you know, 24 hours, a whole day. And that would eventually lead to other things like needing food. You'd, you'd have to stop walking to find something to eat. Uh, you'd need shelter. You'd have to stop and find a place to sleep throughout the journey. Or, you know, general possible dangers to health and safety. It was, it was a big step. Then, with the invention of the car, you could travel that same step in a few hours. So now, not only are you removing one large noticeable step, but the many tiny steps that are connected to it. So now, you're never having to worry about food. You don't have to worry about wearing out your shoes. You're not worrying about your muscles aching. These are now parts of your life you have zero contact with ever again. And what we don't realize is, like trusting a machine to dispense soap into our water instead of applying it ourselves. Inventions like the car have, have a rather large trade-off for reducing that step. The trade-off for that step is every time we make that trade, we trade a little bit of our freedom. Yeah, but, but how? I'm getting there. See, people thought the soap injector was a stupid invention because the step from the action was so small. But that's what it was. It was, in fact, a step. And inventions' purposes are to reduce steps humans have to do for themselves. And no matter how small the step, people eventually just started using the automated soap integrators. And nobody even remembers applying your own soap or that they once preferred it. As a human, you fight the change 
then eventually you accept the change and that becomes the new perspective of what it means to be human. My father remembers a time when people applied soap to their own hands and he sneers at me for let, letting a machine do it as if I lost something by letting a machine do it for me. Whereas his father remembers a time when there was, I don't know, uh, only a limited supply of hot water in a tank and then the water would run out and it'd be really cold and my father doesn't know how good he had it, blah, blah, blah. That's sort of a weird example, but you know, I'm trying to stick with the soap thing. <laughs> the point is, there's an evolution of hand washing, just like anything else. Whether people think they need it or not, it's something that continues to evolve and I'm asking towards what end? Essentially making a thing we all have to do exponentially smaller, eventually leading it towards something we don't have to do at all. Essentially reducing the activity to the point of extinction. And with the loss of the activity, we have a loss of freedom. We have a loss of options and a loss of purpose. We're simply less. And the bigger the step we destroy, the more smaller steps are destroyed with it. Soon, maybe, we as humans, we won't even walk anymore because the necessity for walking will just cease to exist. Now, if I told you that with the invention of a car, that invention would rob my great-grandchildren the freedom of walking, you'd call me crazy. But as you could see, that's exactly what it could be doing. Okay, but if that's true, it's not because someone is forbidding your great-grandchildren to walk. It's because people have chosen to evolve to a point where they don't need or want to walk anymore. It's the path they choose. How is one's choice then taking away their freedom. Just like the people who rejected the integrated soap dispensers and said they didn't need them, did they choose? Seems to me that they chose that they didn't need or want their soap to be automatically integrated. And yet here we are, all using integrated soap dispensers, not really having a problem with it. See, the thing is, we think we have a choice, but really we don't. Name one invention that's been defeated by human choice. When digital photography was invented, just about everyone preferred film, same with digital movies, same with digital music. Every time people said, this is such a shame, we don't need this, the old way is better. And then, before you know it, those exact people were taking digital photos and film with something they showed people at parties. The option of ease will always win over whatever notions we have otherwise, whatever we think we choose. It's only a matter of time. So in that respect, we've chosen anything as humans, or are we in an irreversible spiral towards enslavement to our own inability to avoid ease? <laughs> enslavement, a little dramatic, don't you think? Sure, sure, yes. And, and, but that's the trick of it. It will always seem dramatic, but it's happening every second of every day. And it's not under our control. Let me put it this way. We don't know what our purpose is on this planet. The best guess we have as to why we're here is, you know, to do things. And while we're doing things, while progress moves on, it seems our purpose in progress is to actively destroy the things we're needed to do. By saying the purpose of our existence is to advance progress, is to eventually make our existence obsolete. We're like the universe's homeowners. And with everything we clean or fix, there's one less thing to clean or fix. And eventually our house will be so clean and so fixed, we'll actually have no purpose and we'll simply cease to exist like a light dying in the sky. So you see, in terms of these steps we take out of our lives, we're not reducing steps to reach a higher place. We're merely destroying the steps as we climb them, leaving the human race 
in a perpetual, frantic, feverish sprint up a staircase that never goes any higher. So I hear this interview and I was just like, wow. Like suddenly all these thoughts and feelings I have been, that have been like so muddled in my mind just became totally aligned. Like, pew, like bam, <laughs> suddenly so clear. But doesn't what he's saying in this speech kind of go against everything that singy punk entails? I can, you know, I can understand why you might think that, but I don't think Nathan actually has his own judgments of his own theories. I think he just accepts them to be the truth, and so do I. So, no, I don't actually think what Nathan Fairbanks believes goes against singy punk, and in fact, it sort of was what made me think to create active stagnant singulism um, in the first place. So here's something else you should know about Laura in the singy-punk community. She's actually much more of a prominent figure in the community than she leads on. And at this point, she has created a sort of subcommittee or active form of the idea called Active Stagnant Singulism. There's even a group for it on Facebook, and she actually has a good number of, well, lack of a better word, followers. And when I asked her to tell me about it, she almost seemed embarrassed. Like, she didn't want to take credit. Active stagnant singulism is a sort of, I don't know, higher level of singupunk. It's kind of like a more advanced thinking that I'm sort of the founder of. I guess it's sort of like a religion, but of course I hesitate to call it that. I don't, I don't like to think of it that way for obvious reasons, but I guess it technically is. Um, it's just a lifestyle choice that I made, and I've made talks on it in the Singupunk community. Um, and so there have been other people that have been inspired to live that way too. I asked Laura to explain what in truth an active stagnant singulist beliefs were. And again, she kind of got uncomfortable, like she didn't want to get into it. Like she didn't trust I would understand. Finally, she just blurted it out. Okay, so here's what I was thinking when I came up with ASS. I listened to that interview with Nathan Fairbanks, and, like, what's the conclusion of that interview, do you think? One side of it would be that it's inevitable, that we are merely the universe's, I forget what he said, like, janitors or something, and we are just destined to eventually lead ourselves on a path of nothingness and eventually just cease to exist because we have eliminated our own purposes. So then you think, okay, well then let's just reject that purpose. Let's just destroy all technology and live in the woods again. Well, I mean, that, that might on some level be nice if there were a few less billion people and we all had plenty of toilet paper, but it doesn't actually solve any problems. Ultimately, all that does is hit the reset button on human progress. So we would enjoy simplifying things, but eventually we would just do everything we already did. We would build a house, and we'd build a better roof for our house, and we'd build a little pathway leading up to our house. Like, the cycle would be the exact same. It wouldn't solve anything. It still wouldn't answer the question of what are we doing and why are we doing it. It would just allow us to reset the lifeline of our species. You know, like, sort of like wanting to be a baby again. So it doesn't solve anything. We would still be chasing something, and we'd still be at odds with our, with our purpose. So <laughs> essentially the catch-22 of our species, I thought at the time, you know, was that 
we're just designed to never be satisfied. And yet our purpose was to seek satisfaction. And then I thought of something that never has that problem, the robot. The robot executes, it has a program and it executes that program. It doesn't have a satisfaction level and it doesn't even have real desires. Desires that need to be achieved to then have a feeling of satisfaction gained quickly followed by just the next desire. As human's purpose is perpetually moving, a robot stays still. It does what it was created to do, and that's it. It just does it. And the idea just felt so, like, free, almost. To, to be free of the constant ups and downs of chasing, hunting your next desire, only to instantly feel hungry for the next desire. And that's what active stagnant singularism is. It's living your life denying the chase of satisfying your desires. I asked her how, as an active stagnant singularist, one practiced this. I could tell that Laura was getting a little excited talking about this, honestly. But everything she said was contained, almost controlled. I almost got the sense that she was keeping her excitement caught in the back of her throat, preventing it from coming out. So active stagnant singularism is pretty tricky. And honestly, it takes a lot of commitment. Essentially, it goes like this. If you were to just eliminate all desires in your life, you would be exactly, like I said, like a robot. But like I also said, we aren't really robots, are we? We're humans. And to eliminate desire would in some way eliminate our humanity, right? And I don't even think that's exactly what we're aiming for, you know, to be lifeless, monotone drones or anything, because that would be just as fake as denying our programming or our purpose anyway. Um, so the practice of active stagnant singularism isn't to eliminate desires. It's to live your life denying the chase of those desires. And the only way to live with desires you can't satisfy is to keep, you know, kind of a constant. The only way to learn how to deny something is to entrench yourself in it. So what does that mean exactly? <laughs> so I keep myself intentionally, almost artificially, in a state of complete unsatisfaction 100% of the time. Yeah, you just heard that right. 100% unsatisfaction all the time. You know that little itch on your face? Try not scratching it. Ever. Now, if you're already a little confused, hang tight. This gets a little confusing, but stick with it, I promise. It is impossible to never desire something. So to be entrenched with unsatisfaction actually creates in our mind and our bodies the exact harmony the conflict initially creates. It's almost like a rehab. It's like a detox. If I'm thirsty, I deny myself water. When I have to drink, I drink too much till I get a stomach ache because my thirst or lack thereof it shouldn't impact how I think or how I feel. And even when I go on a date, I don't expect to see him again because his evaluation of me doesn't actually impact me. When I apply for a new job, I expect to not get it. I'm agreeing to do this interview, but I don't care if anyone really listens to it because I know that if they do, they won't bring meaning to my life. And a lot of people say, that just sounds like pessimism. You're just giving up so you can't fail. 
And I hear that a lot, but they're wrong. It's, it's not that I don't have desires. It's that I don't let my desires feel satisfied. And in that struggle, life propels itself because that's the only time we feel alive. I'm thirsty. I do want a boyfriend. God knows I do. I want this interview to bring some meaning to someone else and therefore bring meaning to my life. I want all these things intensely, but what's, what's, <laughs> you know, what's different about what I'm doing and what someone else might do is I don't kid myself that achieving these things will ever bring purpose to my life. You see what I'm saying? And by artificially keeping them unsatisfied, you know, my desires, I'm, I'm rejecting the urge that we as humans have to continue chasing endless, meaningless desires. And by keeping them solidified, by keeping them never satisfied, in my mind, it's essentially freezing in time, the only time we as humans actually live. So how, how is this affecting you? Like, how are you actually feeling while living like this? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's hard at first, for sure. But what I'm, what I'm finding is that slowly and surely, I'm starting to kind of level out that the desires that I used to have and that used to really drive me crazy are becoming much quieter. And like I said, I haven't achieved perfection or whatever. I'm just discovering this. It's all just a theory that I have. But what I'm hoping is that, I don't know, someday I can maybe eliminate the need to satisfy my desires. And that something will kind of just like become clear to me. Maybe it will be my purpose, my real purpose. And maybe then, like the robot, I will finally be able to execute my programming. The program that I was meant to execute. I'll be honest with you, in the coffee shop, I'm a little bit stunned right now. But I just can't resist but ask my next question. But wouldn't that moment, like, wouldn't you in that moment kind of finally figuring out your, your own true purpose, finding out that level of enlightenment to, like, see your, clearly your, you know, your programming, wouldn't you be forced to find satisfaction in that? You know, wouldn't it, wouldn't it kind of just be like a long con on you? Like, the whole time you're rejecting satisfying your desires, like, wouldn't you just be ultimately satisfying a bigger desire, and then wouldn't you instantly just be brought back to square one? Well, when you think of that moment, yeah. And even when I think of that moment now, yeah, I can't help but remember that I'm still aware of a level of consciousness that I'm trying to obtain. But if I were to actually achieve that balance that we're talking about, which would bring on such clarity, no, I would feel no approval at all. I would feel no pride, no satisfaction. I simply execute. Execute with a clarity no human has ever dreamt of. To achieve what? For what purpose? I don't know. And ultimately I won't care. But I know that it'll be the truth. I asked her one more question. I asked her how she would feel tomorrow if robots did actually become self-aware and take over. Like in the movies. If the singularity existed tomorrow. If robots actually do what people are afraid of, if they actually become so advanced that they skyrocket into self-awareness and they have no need for us and they wipe us out or just expand to the point of overtaking us, I honestly don't think that I, that I would have a problem with it. Um, you know, I don't see it as humans creating an enemy and the enemy turning on us and destroying us as if we've created our own worst nightmare. I see it as humans creating a species, 
a species that grows so advanced in their functions and their thinking that they can't even recognize we exist anymore because they are functioning on like such an advanced plane. And I just see that as something so it's beautiful that this species is so advanced, like millions of times the possibility of human function, and yet they came from humans. And, and they are just as unaware of us as we are, the very molecules our bodies and minds are made up of. And that sort of implies a lot. It sort of implies that we've always been wrong in assuming we've come from a higher power. But actually from a much, much lower and insignificant power. And like Fairbanks said, if humans are just in a perpetual, infinite, progressionless chase with their own purpose, if us giving birth to such an advanced species actually destroys ours in the process, I, I honestly can't think of a better purpose to our existence than that. Laura Reeser lives in Ridgewood, Queens. She's 26 years old and she works at a coffee shop. This is our new city. I'm Max Cook. about this episode and other episodes like it, visit ournewcitypodcast.com.